There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. This is where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, explore new ways of connecting to one another, exchanging value, and celebrating and sustaining human life in the face of so many obstacles, mostly of our own creation. It's not too late to change the story. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, activist, journalist, and science fiction author of the new anthology Radicalized, my friend Cory Doctorow. We can say to ourselves, in that science fictional way, what would this look like under a more equitable social relationship? Corey will be showing us how who owns and controls the technologies we use really matters. It's time to intervene on our own behalf. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Well, it's been a rough week for me. I got shingles of all things it's this weird relapse of chicken pox you get from too much stress and uh, for me it was too many emails and trying to make 10 appointments every day with people who want advice or encouragement it's just too much but it also got me thinking about vaccines yeah I should have gotten one but I didn't Partly because no one told me to, but partly because you have to get two of them and it tends to make people feel pretty sick. But vaccines are also an issue that seems to embody a whole lot of our current scientific, social media, and civic strife. I'm no anti-vaxxer, but we can't pretend that there's no cost or risk whatsoever to getting vaccines. You know, some percent of people, however small, get bad reactions to vaccines. And, you know, clinical evidence shows that only a very small, if any, correlation between vaccines and autoimmune diseases exists. 
But that doesn't reassure those of us with neighbors whose kids came down with some rare debilitating syndrome in the days following their second Gardasil injection. So part of the problem in measuring any of this definitively, beyond the shadow of a doubt for every person who thinks about it, it comes from the fact that we're not all the same. Different people have different immune systems. We've all been exposed to different diets of plastics and pesticides and other poisons, and our bodies have adapted and maladapted immune systems. The increase in severe allergies and autoimmune diseases, particularly in industrial nations, it could have as much to do with the fact that kids are exposed to less soil these days, which is rich in the bacteria that trains our immune systems, as it does with the plastic in their food. And while any particular vaccine may have no measurable negative effects, the impact of 20 or more vaccines within a few years on immune systems already struggling with everything else is taxing. So besides, I mean, I try to think of the anti-vaccination movement, not from a scientific perspective, but from an emotional one. The way I think of ardent Trump supporters. Vaccinations, on a certain level, they function like fake news. They tell the body it's under attack. You've got the flu. You've got diphtheria. You've got chickenpox. So that it calls up the appropriate antibodies and mounts the defense. Give a baby four vaccines at one time, like we gave my kid, and its body thinks it has four diseases. Most kids receive 320 antigens by the time they are two. So if it feels as if government and all too often corrupt, profit-seeking pharmaceutical companies are requiring people to accept the false constant messaging that they're in danger, you know, that these antigens are really attacking them, tricking, confusing, and burdening their immune systems, and then combine this with the fact that the frequency of autoimmune diseases is rising significantly every year, and it's easy to conclude that maybe, just maybe, mandated vaccinations are a sign of government overreach and big pharma disinformation. Do I agree with that sentiment? No. But we at least have to accept the fact that nobody wants to take vaccines, to feel shitty, or to see their kids get fevers. But we also have to remember that the real reason to take them is less for ourselves as individuals than to protect everybody, or even wipe out certain dangerous diseases altogether. The smallpox vaccine ended smallpox, a fatal disease. We don't even get vaccinated for it anymore. That's called herd immunity. So you think of it this way. If every kid in your daughter's class gets vaccinated for something, then none of them is going to expose your kid to that disease. If the herd doesn't have a disease, then anyone entering the herd is going to be safe. But 92 to 94 percent of people need to be vaccinated for herd immunity to take effect. And too many people want to qualify to be in that special 6% of people who are exempted from the vaccinations. And that's why it's not the poor, but the rich, white, and educated who tend to find ways for their kids to avoid vaccines. In private schools, exemption rates are almost double what they are in public schools. So it's not a science lesson these parents need, but a civics lesson. 
in a perfect world, no one would have to take vaccines, pay taxes, or wait at red lights. But living in a society means making some personal sacrifices for the collective welfare. It's also why we have to contribute more, not less, to the government agencies that do the research and recommendations on public health policy. Getting a vaccine is not about what's in it for me. It is quite literally taking one for the team. I'm Astrid Taylor, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Aaron Maté, and I'm on Team Human. Hey, I'm Alex Rivera. I'm on Team Human. I'm Brewster Kalen. I'm on Team Human. I'm Jacinta Gonzalez, and I'm on Team Human. We're Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Media Squad, home to the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College. A few years ago, when I was first struggling with an inbox overflowing with requests, I decided to email Corey Doctorow for advice. As an editor of Boing Boing, he must be dealing with even more incoming email than I get, as well as all the guilt of not being able to meet the needs of all the people emailing for advice, for meetings, or to read their books. So what's his solution? I got a response almost immediately. It was an automatically generated response saying that he was working on a book and couldn't respond to email, but that if it was urgent business, I could contact his agent. I guess I got my answer. And I experienced no ill will for having gotten that automated reply. Corey Doctorow is great that way, writing fiction and articles, metaphors and scenarios that clarify the underlying dynamics of living in a technologized society that's rapidly embedding laws and values into its code that we'll all have to live with if we don't wake up and begin to participate. I'm speaking with uh, Cory Doctor, who I consider a good friend, even though we spent probably four hours together over the course of our lives. I first met you, I don't know if you remember, at Mark Frauenfelder's house, like three houses ago in Los Angeles, where I was, I think, staying there or going to stay there. And he said, oh, Doug, there's someone you have to meet. And you, he he was like, he's, I remember Mark saying something like, he's one of us, but he also understands computers. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Meaning one of the sort of mutant, happy mutant people of the Boing Boing era, but you were like maybe 10 or 15 years younger than us, I think, at the time anyway. Um, Now you're the same age. Yeah, well, that's the way it goes. (laughs) But you were from Canada and you were figuring something out uh, about something. And he was like, he understands, he's like EFF and, and, and platforms and programming and Linux and all these things. Um, and you were, I think at the time, almost a long haired kid, um, from Canada and, and talking fast. And it was before the first big sci-fi books had come out. Mm-hmm. And, um, my gosh, you know, what, what 25 years do here you are, science fiction author, a boing, boing editor, uh, a technology activist, um, a public intellectual and, you know, and here I am doing team human, which is basically, uh, when, when push comes to shove, it's really just an excuse, 
um, to talk to the people that for some reason in our utilitarian economy, we I can never justify finding the hour or they can't either to just just engage. Um, so I'm really interested for for people to understand what what was your kind of what was your path to becoming who you are and doing the kinds of things that you've done, I guess, from the time of being a, a you know, a, some smart Canadian kid to being. Sure. Well, you know, I always say to, you know, young people who want to get involved in technology that really all it takes is to have the good judgment and self-discipline to be born in 1971. Mm. And if, if, if only they'd had the foresight, then they, like me, <laughs> could have had a career in technology with no uh, formal credentials. So, you know, my dad is a, a computer scientist, a mathematician, and a high school math teacher. And uh, he was the head of the computer science department at a local big high school in Toronto in 1979, when Apple offered everyone who was the head of a computer science department a free summer's access to a Apple II+. Plus. But this was our first personal computer, and then I got involved with modems. Um, we got a modem around the same time, and we, we had to decide because the, the Apple only had a limited number of slots, and we had to decide whether or not we wanted to use one of those slots for a modem or for the 80-column card that lets you use lowercase um, characters as well as uppercase characters. <laughs> and so, you know, it was all uppercase for me because once once the modem was in play, that was it. And I went to a great groovy alternative school full of curious kids who were getting computers and getting involved. One of those kids was a kid named Timmy Wu, who is now better known as Tim Wu, the law professor who coined the term net neutrality. And we used to bring our computers over to each other's houses. We used to lug whole Apple II Pluses and televisions over to each other's houses and connect to bulletin board systems and, and get involved. And so I was always involved in computers. I was also always involved in science fiction. Toronto's a really good science fiction town to grow up in. Mm. Uh, Judith Merrill, who was this American dissident editor and uh, writer and anthologist and critic, had moved her kids to Toronto after the Chicago police riots in 1968 and basically gone into exile there. She brought along the book collection that she and her ex-husband, Frederick Pohl, had, had created and donated it to the Toronto Public Library, where it became the nucleus of what was then called the Spaced Out Library and is now the Merrill Collection. It's the largest public science fiction collection in the world. And Judy was the writer in residence. And you could bring her manuscripts. And she would sit down when you were 12 years old and critique those manuscripts, this towering legend in the field. Uh. And moreover, she would connect you with other writers and get you to form workshops. And you could use the library space to hold workshops. And so that's how I started workshopping with the likes of Carl Schrader and Madeline Ashby and Peter Watts and David Nichol and, and a group of other science fiction writers from town. And so these two things kind of go in parallel. I went to a great alternative secondary school called Seed School, where I spent seven years in a, in a four-year diploma program, uh, including a year where I dropped out and moved to a little house in Baja California Sur and wrote, uh, and a year when I organized street demonstrations against the war in Iraq, the first one. My parents were, were also both uh, uh, Marxist organizers and activists. Uh, Trotskyists uh, who were also in, involved in uh, the fight for a woman's right to choose. So I was very involved in all of those causes, including the anti-nuclear proliferation cause. And so, uh, you know, my, my interest was always in how computers could intersect with these wider questions of social justice. And uh, after I graduated finally from the secondary school, I went through four undergraduate programs. 
uh, didn't graduate from any of them, uh, eventually dropped out of the University of Waterloo uh, when I got a job offer to program CD-ROMs for a, uh, a company contracting to Voyager in New York, the, the best multimedia house in the world. It was such an exciting job that, that I took it. And that's how I ended up in the tech industry. I ended up then building gopher sites and then websites mm-hmm. and then uh, co-founded a software company with some friends that I'd met doing that stuff. Uh, moved to San Francisco after raising a bunch of capital to, to do the business. Uh, and uh, then when our venture capitalists tried to cram the founders and take the company on the eve of a proposed sale to Microsoft, uh, I quit. And that was one of the things that scuttled the sale. They ended up with nothing. And I went to work with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, for whom I was European director. Mm-hmm. And on the way, I started publishing first short stories and then novels uh, and I've, I've published uh, 20-something books now, a mix of fiction, nonfiction, fiction for young adults, middle grades books, graphic novels, uh, essay collections, uh, short story collections. And, and most recently, I just finished um, proofing the galleys for a picture book for very small children. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And, the, and the thing that the, the book of the moment now is, uh, is radicalized, which is a really fun super accessible book. I mean, the thing I love about radicalized is if someone hasn't read any of your other stuff, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? If they don't know the, the, the sort of the, the stories of the novels or don't know the various worlds you've created, you can just start right there. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's a fresh, mm-hmm. it's a fresh start and they're bite size, you know, even for people who can't do, you know, game of Thrones level, you know, mm-hmm, they're, mm-hmm. They're, they're they're super accessible and the one i think that everybody keeps talking about which is which is well i don't even want to go there yet but there's four it's you you call it's radicalized four tales of our present moment and then me as a structuralist i can't look at something like this with four sections four tales of our present moment and start thinking about why did he pick four you know (laughs) is it is it four is it four because aristotle has four causes is it four (laughs) Because there's four, there's oh god, four, are you going to be disappointed? There's four <laughs> future scenarios when you do one of those global business network things, and they, yeah, yeah. You know I mean, they have two, they have an X and a Y axis, so they have an yeah. extremely rich, extremely poor, extremely tech, extremely non-tech. So you get four quadrants, and they come up with four stories. Or then I was thinking, you know, you've always talked about Larry Lessig's pathetic dot theory. And Mm -hmm. in there, there's four major regulators of society, which I would love to talk about with you too, but there's the law, the norms, the market, and the architecture. And then could I sort of impose that on the story? So, oh, here's a story that deals with the laws, here deals with norms, here it doesn't quite match up like that. No. Is there a theory of four or is there just four? No, (laughs) no, no. These were my Trump derangement syndrome story. So I I was actually working on the the third book for little brother, which is now in my editor's hands and, and they've just made an offer on it. Mm. We're going to publish it with tour books and uh, you know, life comes at you fast. And you know, the, the thing that's happened, I think in the last decade or so is that the, tempo of news has increased even as our ability to agree on how we adjudicate truth claims in the news and elsewhere has become more fragmented. And so one of the things that happened around the Trump era is that I started to get bombarded by more fragments than I could make sense of. You know, blogging and keeping track of fragments on Boing Boing has always been this really productive way for me to try and understand 
broader pictures. You know, you take each piece as it comes in, you annotate it for notional third parties who you don't know and, and who don't have any context. And that makes you give it some rigor and, you know, not just, just cheat as you do when you keep notes for yourself, where you just, you know, make these fragmentary notes and assure yourself you'll know what you meant when you come back to them. And then you never do, you mm-hmm. know, writing for an audience makes you apply rigor. And then, and then what happens is you start to make connections just automatically by dint of, of thinking so thoroughly about each of those fragments. But I, I was being outstripped and I, I couldn't tell whether stories that were popping up on my radar were continuations of stories I already knew about, restatements of things that had already happened, new phenomena, phenomena related to phenomena. And so I started to spin them out into narratives, right? That's that's like how, as a writer, I make sense of things. And it's a lot about how we, we make sense of things as humans too. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I wrote the first one, Unauthorized Bread, and everybody really liked it. Topic immediately optioned it for TV. They're the, or not optioned it, they, they bought it for TV. They're the the TV arm of uh, The Intercept. And um, and for people the, who haven't read it yet, I mean, Unauthorized Bread is basically about a toaster. Yeah, yeah. The German title is How to Outsmart a Toaster. It's about a, a refugee housing where all the devices are designed to extract as much money as possible from the people who don't have any choice but to live there, you know, which is basically where you find the worst technology is where people don't get to make choices. It's all of our shitty technology ideas we beta test on people who, who don't get any agency. And then we kind of work our way up the agency gradient so that you start with CCTVs being a thing where if there was a CCTV watching you eat, it was because you were in a supermax prison, and now right. it's because you bought an Alexa, you know? Right. And, and um, so, you know, by, by situating uh, the story around refugees, you get to show what the unvarnished, early stage, uh, completely, like, gloves-off version of shitty technology looks like. So her toaster will only toast authorized bread and her dishwasher will only wash dishes from an authorized vendor. Uh, and uh, the elevator doors only stop if there isn't someone who's not getting a rent subsidy wanting the elevator. And she and her friends in this refugee housing that are on, on the poor floors of a building that got a zoning variance to get taller if they would have some below market rent subsidy units they start to jailbreak their appliances first out of necessity because the companies that own them have temporarily gone bankrupt as a part of a, you know, big post post, uh, you know, late stage capitalist grift. Uh, and then, uh, and then because it's so pleasurable to seize the means of technology and, um, and, and it's about their journey to the second technological self-determination and also about the structural obstacles. Like when these companies start to rebound out of bankruptcy, they face detection and with detection would come felony charges under the digital millennium copyright act, which is like a real non-fictional thing. It makes it a, a felony punishable by a five-year prison sentence and a $500,000 fine to tamper with these locks. Right. And, and, you know, you see that being used to like stop people from fixing their own tractors today, but there's no reason it couldn't be used to stop you from adjusting your toaster to let you choose whose bread you put in the in the toaster oven. Right. Um, and the toaster, the great thing about using a toaster as an example is it sort of, it feels low stakes in that way. Mm-hmm. But then when you start thinking about, well, what if that toaster were your hearing aid? What if it were yeah. your artificial heart? What if it was your, your kidney, uh, uh, you know, triggering device? Then all of a sudden, well, hold on a minute now. You know, I'm not allowed to listen to music unless I paid for it. I'm not allowed to look at stuff that's big, that, that the copyright hasn't been negotiated through my eye company 
I mean, well, and you know, in a like a non-speculative way, Johnson and Johnson got regulatory approval for an artificial pancreas. It's like a, a glucose monitor and an insulin pump. And, um, it, it, they use proprietary insulin cartridges. You know, insulin itself is not proprietary. Banting and Best, these two uh, lads from Toronto, who I think unfortunately also turned out to be eugenicists, but they they <laughs> in, discovered uh, insulin and they charged $1 for the patent because they didn't want to limit people's access to insulin. And now you have Johnson & Johnson hundreds of years later, whose contribution to the art is taking something that someone generously gave away and making it proprietary and, and they want to make it a felony to decide whose, uh, you know, biological agents you add to your internal organs. Right. So then you have to jailbreak your organ the way I, I have to jailbreak my HP printer in order to use an unauthorized ink cartridge in there. I mean, do yeah. I own my printer or friggin' not? Well, and you know, the, the thing is that the rules for this, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, they originally intended, they, they were always intended to go beyond copyright. They were always intended to enforce non-copyright business models. Like, you know, the first model for them was to stop people from jailbreaking their DVD players to watch out-of-region DVDs. And that's pretty obviously like not a copyright infringement, right? Like going into a store in Mexico or Australia or France and buying a DVD and paying the price that the rights holder has set for it and then watching that DVD is the like non-hyperbolic, literal opposite of copyright infringement. That's like what copyright is supposed to be, right? You you bought it, you paid for it, you enjoyed it in the way that it was intended to I be enjoyed. I bought a copy. Yeah, it's mine, right? <laughs> and so so you know it had to, the statute always had to say that it it had to be against the law to break copyright protection, even if you weren't violating copyright, because the only reason for these copyright locks was to prevent you from doing things that would otherwise be legal, right? And and so originally this was just DVD players, but the scope of device that, that can be said to have a copyrighted work in it, and therefore a lock that protects a copyrighted work, has, inc- has increased to encompass anything that has software in it, because software is copyrightable. Right. And so what this means is now we have these copyright locks being used to determine how you can make use of your uh, implanted pacemaker, implanted defibrillator, your hearing aids, your seismic damper in your skyscraper, your voting machines, your uh, phone, your car, your tractor, you know, this, this like monotonic expansion of devices covered under a rule that was originally supposed to just be about like enforcing the right of DVD players to segment their markets. And, and what this means is that since software is infusing every device that we have, and since once there's software in it, the manufacturer can legally compel you to arrange your affairs to benefit its shareholders, even when that runs counter to your own interest, is it, is it means the end of property as we understand it, right? That, that property rights, like if you ever do like a first year law property course, you know, they will, the, the, like on the first day on the chalkboard, they'll have Blackstone's property definition, which is that which man enjoys soul and despotic dominion over to the exclusion of every other man in the universe, right? You know, kind of sexist language, but it's from the 18th century. And, you know, if, if using a thing that you own in ways that displeases the manufacturer causes the dead hand of the manufacturer to rise up off of that thing and kind of go upside your head, you know, brick your printer or throw an error message or call the cops because you've been jailbreaking your car or your phone, then you don't really own anything, right? Then, then what we have is a kind of feudalism where all of us are tenants 
and the aristocracy owns property. And the aristocracy, in this case, it's not even human beings, right? It's it's like these transhuman, artificial, immortal colony life forms called right. limited liability companies exactly. that treat us like inconvenient gut flora. But the way they talk about it from their perspective is people aren't buying a product. They're, the product is really the beachhead for their lifelong relationship with your company. You know what I mean? You don't sure. You don't own a printer. You now have a relationship with HP uh, uh, cartridge company. You know. So the question for me becomes almost: Are the is the law here to pro- genuinely to protect intellectual property, or is intellectual property as a concept kind of this excuse to protect something else? Well, you know, I, I gave a talk about uh, uh, the relationship of the phrase intellectual property to um, wider ideas from from colonialism called um, uh, terra nullius, the, the, the empty land, the, mm-hmm. the land that no one owns. So, you know, the, the, the conception of property as we understand it today, it comes from John Locke. And, and John Locke, you know, he's this uh, like very important grifter thinkfluencer who... Uh, you know, in, in the 17th century, he was trying to reconcile the seemingly irreconcilable problem, which is that, you know, he was a good Christian, and the Bible says that God created the earth for all men to enjoy, and yet uh, he wouldn't be able to, like, have patrons if he went around telling rich people that they had to share everything. So he had to come up with a, a theory of property that let rich people own the things that God made for everyone to enjoy without, uh, you know, violating the underlying theology. And his answer was that God made a bunch of stuff that's just sort of lying around with nobody using it. And then there is one thing that you absolutely own and that no one else owns, and that's your body. And so when you take your body and have it do labor with stuff that no one is using, then by this sort of transitive property, the labor generated by the thing that you own, your body, improves the thing that nobody owns and makes it a thing that you own so you have you have unused stuff it gets you you rub labor all over it and it becomes property and the thing is that that this is always uh um assumed that all of the things that people were doing with something before you got there don't qualify to make it their property in some way and so in you know the real world you have uh colonialists showing up in Australia and in, in the Americas and saying all of these people running around doing stuff in this land are, are in some important way, not infusing it with labor in a way that we are going to recognize officially. Right. And really the, the value that they're adding is not, uh, has no, has, has no legacy. Yeah. To it. And, and also, you know, the, the, um, that because the title is diffused, right? Because they are not engaged in Lockean property relations that that produces an, an owner who has a deed to the place that you've determined to colonize that you could then negotiate with or trick or buy something from. Therefore, this doesn't belong to anyone, right? So, so Locke ends up in a world where something everyone is using becomes synonymous with something no one is using. And, you know, what they did was they declared the new worlds to be empty lands, terra nullius. And by extension, the people who are on the new world uh, are not people, right? So, you know, famously, Aboriginal people of Australia were classed as livestock and were hunted, you know, literally to extinction in some cases. So terra nullius 
is the precursor to genocide. And in cultural contexts, we take all of the things that go into our creative endeavor and we discount them to zero. And then we take the part that we add and we reify it and we say that was the important part. So, you know, uh, like in, in we know who invented the novel as we understand it today. It was Cervantes, right? With, with yeah. uh, or Cervantes with, um, with Don Quixote, right? We, we know who invented the detective story. It was Edgar Allan Poe, hmm. right? And, and we say that when I write a novel, that the part that Cervantes contributed is an irrelevancy, right? That it, it was just sort of lying around there unimproved, waiting for me to come along and improve it with my creative labor. And we take the part that I add and we say that part, that is really important, right? Not like inventing novels. Inventing novels, anyone could do. Whereas adding a new novel to the stack is something really important that I have done. And, you know, there's a natural uh, impulse to take the part that you add and think of it as more important than the parts that you built on. But that impulse is, is it's inconsistently honored. So for example, in, in uh, copyright law, when we talk about music, we recognize the copyrightability of melodies, but not of complex polyrhythms. Now melodies are the parts of music that are most associated with European musical traditions. Complex right. polyrhythms but are African. Afro-Caribbean, right. right. And so what this means is that the Beatles can treat R&B as plumbing, right? As like infrastructure, and they can just build on top of it. And then um, when hip hop artists sample the Beatles, they can be clobbered by the Beatles record label. Right. And that's uh, because, right, because the melody is considered the figure and the rhythm is just considered the ground. It's just the right. environment that we're going to yeah, destroy. That's well said. Figure and ground. Exactly right. And so the it's the thing is that i think the impulse to declare what you did yours and what everyone else did irrelevant is widespread but the ability to make that impulse have the force of law is a function of power and so what you end up with is the reification or the lionization of the contributions of the powerful and the discounting to zero of the contributions of the weak. And then the, the final complication that we need to acknowledge when it comes to ideas and the expression of ideas is something that Kevin Kelly calls the adjacent possible. So, mm -hmm. so Kelly wrote this great book called What Technology Wants. And one of the things that he wants to understand is how is it that like seven people invent television at the same time, right? What does it mean when we say you don't get railroads till it's railroading time? Right. And, and what, he, what he says is that thinking up things like a railroad is actually pretty straightforward, right? If you go back and you look at, say, the history of the helicopter, you find da Vinci sketching in his sketchbooks and going, okay, I know how a maple key falls from the tree, and I understand the action of a screw in a wine press, and I can draw a thing where we marry the screw of the wine press to blades that look like maple keys, and what we get is a thing that looks like it should fly. And he's not the only one. People are having these inspirations constantly from the time of da Vinci on, and maybe even before him. But it's not until we have metallurgy and aerodynamics and internal combustion engines that it's possible to have the inspiration and then think of what to do with it in order to make it into a thing in the world. And once all of those precursors are present, it is possible for lots of people who are having this inspiration more or less all the time 
to start working on it. And this is why when there are ideas in the ether, you start to see them being realized all over the time. This is why the slush pile of Asimov Science Fiction Magazine gets a whole ton of stories that are on broadly similar themes all at the same time. It's, it's, that's what the zeitgeist means. It means the combination of what are ultimately pretty obvious inspirations with the precursors to make those inspirations into something that we can talk about uh, and, and, and start to realize. Right. The, so, trick though, the trick about zeitgeist, though, is the more mm-hmm. the more we let zeitgeist drive our culture, uh, the easier it is to fall into these weird, dark places. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, th- there's an argument to be made that the sort of apocalypse race war uh, zeitgeist that we're in now with everybody imagining some, you know, zombie climate nightmare scenario or another mm-hmm. is 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 driving culture towards an almost an inevitability to use another Kevin Kelly word rather, you know, and, and I wonder, you know, I mean, certainly as a science fiction author, do you, do you feel some responsibility for creating, I know this sounds like, you know, Brian David Johnson a little bit, do we bear some, and and I include myself as kind of a, a, a scenario painter, do we owe society positive constructive visions for how this can work out? Hmm. Well, I mean, I think the point of art is to like uh, make art and, and that art should be true. So I don't know that I'm, I'm going to go so far as to uh, declaim a responsibility, but I will make some causal links here. And then, you know, people can make their own decisions about responsibility. So I think that um, in times of crisis, we deploy what behavioral economists call the availability heuristic, which is that things that are easier to imagine are things that we assume are more likely, right? This is why we spend a lot of time worrying about school shootings, even though school shootings are super rare in terms of overall mortality in the US, and why we don't spend a lot of time talking to our kids and saying, if you ever go to a friend's house and that friend says, do you wanna see my dad's gun? You have to leave that house right away. Even though the most likely way for you to die in a shooting is to either have your finger on the trigger or someone that you know's finger on the trigger and not for a stranger to come into your school and start shooting you. So we deploy the availability heuristic and the availability heuristic is informed by the stories we tell. Right. And then uh, by the, by the theater that we enact, my daughter enacts terror theater every couple of weeks in their school. They do a lockdown. The teacher pushes the desk against the door and they imagine what would we do now if someone were shooting at us? That can't be the most beneficial training to be given. I mean, the most beneficial training would just be to once a week say, what do we say class if we ever go over to a friend's house and they say, want to see my dad's gun? I actually have that conversation with my daughter about once a week since we moved from the UK to the US. Um, We are, you know, like, because because I understand risk, right? And the thing about about risk is that it, it takes resource to defend against risk. Sometimes that's just time, the time you spend thinking about what you do in the face of the risk. Sometimes it's actual money, you know, you buy desks or whatever uh, to shove against the wall, you have bulletproof backpacks. Um, and sometimes it's a combination thereof, you know, attention or whatever. And, and you should apportion risk countermeasures in in a way that is proportional to both the likelihood of the risk, the ease of performing the countermeasure and the consequences of the risk, you know, pulling on your seatbelts, really easy. Getting hit in a car is pretty likely the consequences of getting hit in the car are pretty bad. So you should always put on your seatbelt, 
right? Um, whereas, like, making everybody take their shoes off at the airport, no one's ever blown up a plane successfully with their shoes. If that had ever actually happened, we wouldn't know that shoe bombs work, right? Because that right. plane would have just fallen out of the sky. We're using resources that we could be using on things that defend against far more likely attacks to defend against attacks that are easy to imagine because it was showy when it happened. And so this brings me to a, a writer named Rebecca Solnit. She best known for coining the term mansplaining, but but really just a wonderful historian and essayist. And she wrote this book called A Paradise Built in Hell that was the inspiration for my book Walk Away and then for the fourth novella in Radicalized, The Mask of the Red Death. Huh. And and it's a, a, a book that compares the way that we record the history of disasters with the way that the people who lived through them experienced them. And in particular, she's investigating disasters that are remembered as proof that people are no good, that when the lights go out, the pores are coming to eat you. Um, right. So that's the Brooklyn blackouts. That's the uh, the uh, aftermath of Katrina, aftermath of the Haiti quake, the aftermath of the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, which is one of the er stories of how poor people can't be trusted in disasters and how they will come and attack their social betters. And what you find in every case as she deploys the gold standard for historic investigation, which are these contemporaneous first-person accounts, mm. letters, phone calls, video records made by people on the ground during these crises, is that the crisis is not the moment when you grab your shotgun and go over to your neighbor to take what you've always coveted. The crisis is the moment where the background refrigerator hum of petty grievance stops and leaves behind a kind of ringing silence in which you realize that you have more in common with that neighbor who's been annoying you than you have indifference. Oh, and yeah. I mean, and we experienced that even in, uh, I mean, we experienced that even with uh, uh, Sandy, you know, sure. to some extent, but we experienced it for some time. So the snow comes down, the city goes silent, you step out into the four foot snow or whatever it is, and you see the other humans. And all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, this is a new context. You know, everything is gone. All the, all the TVs and phones are out. And now how can we help each other? At the same time, you know, Sandy happened. I experienced that three days into Sandy. I'm looking at the, the line of cars at the, um, at the gas station here in Westchester and mm -hmm. I see a fight break out between two guys who are online who one doesn't think he's going to get there if the other one takes too much gas. Go to the Home Depot and the tr a truck comes that people think has the new generators on it. And a fight breaks out there as they're all crowding around this truck, which turned out not to have anything in it. They were right. coming to take something away. So it felt like, wow, is three days all it takes for society to break down? Mm -hmm. uh, you know... And that is the question of walk away. It's right. what do we do when the shit hits the fan? Do you, do you, you know, and, and, but it's the question. It's funny. I was just three, four days ago at this. I don't know if anyone from it will be listening. I went to this thing. I won't even say what it was called. It was like a, a private day long retreat for wealthy people sure. to discuss how they realize that climate change is coming and what are we going to do? And how are we going to re-steer our businesses or our lives towards this urgent crisis? I mean, they're really elitist. And they kept asking, how are we going to convince people this and convince people that? And I'm just saying, convince your friggin' selves. The kids already know. But the, the question that kept coming up is, can I both 
divert lots of resources to preventing this bad thing from happening and help build cultural resilience, yet also protect me and my family from the 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 you know the hordes who are going to try to take all our stuff. Where do I hide? Do I have some food in a pantry that I show to other people and then secret food in the basement behind a wall that no one else knows about? You know, and do I should I have a gun or not for when it happens? So it feels like people are actively debating with themselves as if it's an if or you know one or the other you know do do i prepare for a peaceful uh, a peaceful shutdown of society or a violent one well i mean i think that like this is this is the problem of self-fulfilling prophecy right the belief that there aren't enough generators to go around the belief that if your neighbor is selfish you will you know, that, that you will starve while they thrive um, is a self-fulfilling prophecy because the optimal game theory in, in a world in which you think your neighbors are going to defect from a, a cooperative strategy is to defect first. If you're convinced your neighbor is coming over with a shotgun, you'd be an idiot to go over with a covered dish. But one of the ways that you stop your neighbor from coming over with a shotgun is to demonstrate that you are intent on coming over with a covered dish. Right. And, and so, you know, the, 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 uh, I think the right answer is, is, uh, and by right, I mean like the, the sustainable viable answer is that we have to ultimately use cooperation to recover from crisis, right? That, 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 you know, there is no way to operate an extremely complex technological society that's not cooperative. Yeah, but everybody's being a friggin' grasshopper rather than the ant, you know. So you know, in in the bad moment, whether it's a blackout or a climate catastrophe or whatever it is that cuts people off from their complicated urban supply chains, the more we could get—and I hate using terms like that—but the more we could get everybody to have days and days of of supplies for an emergency, then the less taxed each one of us who actually has those supplies is going to be. Yeah, but ultimately, like, that's not how we survive, right? The, the days and days is not the right answer. The right answer is reboot quickly, find resilience, uh, you know, make make big cooperative solutions. Like, we are not going to weather the a crisis based on our individual actions. We will weather that crisis based on our, our social preparedness, right? Based on the resiliency that we build uh, at, a, at a social level. Right. It's super inefficient for everybody to have their own generator. I mean, you know, that's, right. it's just really dumb. Like like that's that's problem number one. Right. It's a bit like saying, well, you know, if only everybody would uh, would take a ride share, we wouldn't need public transit. The reality is that, like, if everybody takes a ride share, Lyft or an Uber, there's so many cars on the road that none of them can get anywhere. Right. Right. And, and so, you know, this this idea that Uber and Lyft have that's in their perspectives for their IPO. That someday we replace them with, uh, with, or we we replace public transit with them. You know, Uber actually says that we need to add so many trillions of miles of rides every year by eliminating all the world's public transit, and that's how we become profitable. And on their prospectus, you know that that the problem is that the math doesn't add up. Right. right. If everybody is running their own generator, there is no conceivable way that we have enough gas at all the pumps in the city to to store all the gas. And if everyone is storing their own gas as well as their own generator, there's no conceivable way that we have enough firefighters to right. put out 
the inevitable horrific fires that break out if everyone is stockpiling gas. Right. You but know, our it, our ability to respond with resilience and cooperative commons-based effectiveness to mm-hmm. future crises seems to me imperiled by what we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation. The more that we're supposed to sort of surrender our autonomy and participation to these large systems, like mm-hmm. um, whether it's it's Apple iTunes or I mean, I think about your Disneyland work. On the one hand, Disneyland and Celebration seem perfect. They're just going to take care of it all for you as long as you follow the rules. I I remember in the early Apple, not early Apple, maybe 10 years ago when computers were just getting too difficult. I said, okay, if I commit entirely to the Apple universe, will you take care of me? I'll surrender. I'll buy every piece. I'm in. I'm all in. And it didn't work. They did not take care of me. Right, sure. <laughs> because there's fundamental breaks well, in their system. Because, well, you know, you, you're the thing is that in order to make that judgment well, you would have to be privy on an ongoing basis to decisions taking place in boardrooms that are weighing priorities beyond the priorities that you have. Apple right. obviously has a lot of users and a lot of stakeholders, including very notably its shareholders, and it's going to make decisions that reflect some balance between them and you don't even get to know how they weight those right. factors no, exactly. you don't get to know what the factors are you know this is why we have democracies right? so i can't go i can't go all in with any of these obviously but the the problem in this sort of ip controlled renters universe where we're all you know renting and trusting and increasingly passive is it's it's harder and harder to imagine these networked bottom up resilient you know uh, mm-hmm. uh, social relationships that will allow us to to avoid catastrophe or survive it so i, I think that there are um there, there's two really salient things to note here first is to wrap this back around to the availability heuristic so one, you asked me what the responsibility of, of fiction writers was. Well, if if in our mind, uppermost, the story that's easiest to recall is that in the time of crisis, the the way that the crisis gets resolved is by people pulling together and not by pulling apart. Right? If we tell the story, you know, I, I I'm a big John Wyndham fan, but his stories have a really toxic underlying idea, which is that you have people who are sunk into barbarism, and that's where all the action is, right? They're all fighting each other, gang war, and Day of the Triffids, the Chrysalids. And then the people who figured it out, figured out how to cooperate, who are often for some reason in New Zealand, uh, come by and go, hey, you noble people who've been fighting against these savages, come back with us to New Zealand. We are making a better world there, right? Because we cooperate there, not like here, right? In some important way, you know, his imagination failed him because like the really interesting story is not how people had shitty fights over, you know, indentured servitude. It's how they avoided them, right? That's the like kind of exciting story. And boy, is that ever an exciting story to, to, to read because the stakes are really high. You know, like the, the only parts of The Walking Dead that I can bear to watch are the parts where it looks like they're figuring out a stable long-term solution, right? right? Not the parts where it's just like, the rest of those parts are like watch the the parts where it's like non-zombie against non-zombie, you know, the the selfish non-zombies versus the non-selfish non-zombies. It's like watching kids in a daycare hit each other over blocks, right? right. It's like it's awful, but it's not interesting. No, it's just various versions of Lord of the Flies. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so, you know, that like that's that's an important story to tell. Now, the other thing that I, I really want to dig into is the rise of conspiracy theories and the and, and, and I include in that um, racist and, and, and authoritarian views, which are all grounded in conspiratorial thinking. And I think that that those ideas have always been around. And we have this um, idealistic version of why they're on the rise, which is that the arguments have been made more compelling in some way, or that the people who are, are making them are better at spreading a kind of ideological contagion. Right. And I think that we really need to look at this through a materialistic lens. We need to ask ourselves, what is it in the world that has changed that now favors conspiratorial thinking? And I think it's inequality. I think that that one of the epiphenomena of inequality is that it's impossible to make good policy under conditions of inequality, right? The more unequal you are, the harder it is to make good policy. Good policy relies on evidence, and the evidence is always counter to the parochial interests of some rich person, right? That getting really rich involves doing something that's really bad for your neighbors, inevitably, right? And the only way to sustain wealth is to do so by sustaining, you know, a bad situation for the people around you. You have to build more pipelines. You need to burn more coal. You need to pay lower wages. You need to be able to bind people over to binding arbitration, mandatory arbitration. You need to to reduce workplace safety, right? All of these things that are like empirically bad for the world are a prerequisite for making billionaires rich and, and then making rich people even richer. And so what you end up with is a world in which these vital truth-seeking exercises where we set up the rules for society so that we can get into a car without worrying that it'll explode and walk into a building without worrying that the roof is going to fall on our heads and eat a dinner without worrying that it's going to poison us to death that night. Those evidentiary processes become available to the highest bidder. And oftentimes that just means some corruption around the margins, but sometimes it does mean that buildings fall on your head or, or, you know, more notably that we are inhabiting a world which is rapidly becoming unfit for human habitation. Uh, And that in that world where, for example, the FDA let the Sacklers sell opioids while lying about the, the idea that they lasted for 12 hours and also lying about how addictive they were, which created an opioid epidemic, which has killed 200,000 Americans more than, you know, the Vietnam war killed. Mm -hmm. It's, it's totally comprehensible how someone will become an anti-vaxxer. Right. I, I listen to friends of mine rail against anti-vaxxers and don't get me wrong. I am vaccinated. My kid is vaccinated. We are all vaccinated. Not vaccinating your kid is a terrible idea and it's selfish and awful. But the way that you become an anti-vaxxer is by reasoning first that pharmaceutical companies are big, concentrated, made up of rich people who have the ear of regulators and they don't care who they kill. And second, that the regulators get let them get away with it because they are in large part drawn from the executive ranks of the pharmaceutical industry and that they plan to have careers after they finish their public service in the pharmaceutical industry and that they are not the watchdogs for the pharmaceutical industry, but the rubber stamps of the pharmaceutical industry. Both yeah. of those things are totally true, right? Right. It doesn't necessarily mean that the vaccines are bad, but if you don't trust the, uh, the person behind the needle, it's a little tricky. Well, it, it requires that you understand enough media literacy to know which journals are reputable and which ones aren't, enough statistical literacy to evaluate whether a study has been well-performed, and also that you understand microbiology and epidemiology, right? That's how, you, that's how you independently adjudicate truth claims 
in the absence of a good evidentiary regulatory process. Right. And that's hard for a lot of people. Right. And on top of that, I can't do it. No, I mean, it's definitely hard. And so I have to end up having to trust the pediatrician, but on some, uh, on some level, I understand the anti-vax movement almost on a, on a, a social spiritual level of there's this establishment trying to tell my body that it's under threat constantly. So tell your kid, here, you've got measles. Here, you've got chicken pox. Here, you've got HPV. Here, you've got hepatitis. And if, if I'm constantly telling my immune system that it is under threat, does that do something long-term? Does that lead to the rise in allergies? Does that lead to the rise in autoimmune disease? I mean, there's, there are almost, I mean, I, and I'm not talking about this scientifically so much as I feel my own uh, immune system uh, wanting to, to, to develop its own resilience without being uh, uh, challenged in this way. So the thing is that that argument, that kind of purity argument about vaccines has been around since vaccines started. Since that argument, George Bernard Shaw made that argument yeah. in the early vaccine days. Yeah. yeah. And that argument did not have a lot of currency or adherence, right? It was a marginal argument on the fringes, and it was trumped by the uh, sense that it is the right thing to do for your kids. That I mean, there's all kinds of things that we do for kids that are not pleasurable in the moment right? Not just vaccines, right? Where our kids cry and are unhappy about it. We, we put them to bed. Right. We, you know, we do like, we do all kinds of things that make our kids miserable. We make them exercise. My kid had like growing pains in her knees and has been doing physio for six months. And, uh, you know, to call, to, to compare it to pulling teeth is to be unduly charitable to pulling teeth, right? Like it is, it is a, an absolute misery from start to finish every single morning. Right. And yet we do it all the time. We do lots of things where we subject our kids to short term pain because we understand that it has a long term benefit. We make them study subjects that they don't enjoy because we know that there'll be a long term payoff for it. Right. All of that stuff. And so the argument didn't have a lot of currency. And then it did. And I think the thing to ask yourself is, what is it that rose at the same time as conspiracy? And obviously correlation is not causation, but I can formulate a hypothesis about how the causal link would go, right? It's easy to understand how people would mistrust our truth-seeking exercises, our evidentiary policies, when they've been lied to through them for a really long time, right? Like, why do people think conspiracies might be around? Well, could it be because Exxon conspired to hide the evidence that climate change was happening and that it was going to render our planet uninhabitable? Like, it's not unreasonable to say Exxon is engaged in conspiracy, you know, it's it's just like historical to assume right. that. So then I look at I look at say five G. You know, mm-hmm. and I don't know. Am I part of the the Russian conspiracy? As the New York Times would say, that Russia's conspiring to make Americans afraid of five G, even though it's actually good for you. Or is this sh- stuff going to give my child cancer? Well, and here's the thing: you can't adjudicate that question. Right? I can't. I, mean, I know. Like like there's that line in in Snow Crash where like up until a man is thirty five. He secretly believes that he could become the world's greatest badass. He can move to a Chinese monastery, study Kung Fu and come back and like fight crime. But after that, you realize that you will never be the world's greatest badass. Well, there may be a time in your life where you think, look, I could go back to university. I could get a doctorate in radiology or electrical engineering or physics, and I could independently review every paper written about this subject, and I could 
resolve the conundrum myself, right? But even if that was the hill that you chose to die on, you would then have to ask yourself, is there dioxin in my water, right? Uh, is there, uh, am I safe in this car? Does this autopilot work? Um, is this 737 Supermax? Has this been adequately vetted by the FAA? The thing is that we need a division of labor, right? We need a, 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 an epistemological process by which we can validate not the conclusions of the process, but the means by which those conclusions were arrived at. And if we can do that, then we can have a high degree of confidence in, in both that the conclusions are as right as we know how to make them, and that if evidence supersedes them, that that evidence will be integrated rather than denied, because uh, if we incorporate the evidence, then we'll all have to stop buying a product that made someone rich. Right. But as things become more unequal, more people are willing to believe a more Trumpian shoot from your hip. All these people are lying. The the investigators need to be investigated and, uh, you know, go with your gut. Well, I think the way to understand that is that as we lose the validity of the of the um, correctness uh, heuristic, right, which is like, well, if if the administrative branch said that it was safe, it's probably safe then you are set adrift in the world and your heuristic becomes the people who said it are the kind of people who think like me and they generally don't give me bum steers. So I think they're right. I mean, I think that if you're honest, you'll admit that that's why you think vaccines are safe. So you are using exactly the same heuristic that anti-vaxxers and Trump uses, which is that people who I think of as trustworthy, I'm going to accept their conclusions because they're the kinds of people that I trust. And, you know, that is like, that's an okay, like, uh, uh, emergency backup for what should be our primary truth-seeking heuristic. But as like our primary means, it's complete garbage, right? That gets us like, that leads us so far astray. So, you know, I I, I think that like, I don't want to say, okay, well, we can't fix anything until we fix inequality. But I am going to say, that everything we do, every small change we make in the margin, should be made with an eye to how it can be used to redress inequality. So net neutrality, one of the reasons net neutrality is important is because it's anti-oligarchic. It it reduces the monopoly rents that carriers can command, and it allows for a greater diversity of entities to communicate on our shared information infrastructure, which by itself will not fell oligarchy, but which is a, a necessary precondition for doing the things that will make uh, oligarchy weaker. And then as individuals, though, I mean, as, as a listener thinking, okay, what should I do? Do I switch to Linux? In other words, <laughs> where do I write to my congressperson to support net neutrality? You know, do do do. What's our high leverage point as individuals? Is it through our consumption, through our media use? Right. You know, and I I think that like the one of the means by which oligarchy has taken hold is by promoting the idea that these are individual choices, right? That that individual choices create these outcomes. Um, and I think that the the way to understand these is as collective problems. So there's you know there's a story in the book uh, about Superman intervening in the fatal beating of uh, an African-American man by the same cops who murdered Eric Garner. And um, Superman is for me like the ultimate expression of the idea of heroic individual action 
and and it is the ultimate example of how individual action is no substitute for collective action. So Superman's origin story is that he was created by a couple of Jewish kids in New York. One of them was a Torontonian, Joe Schuster. My parents used to live on Joe Schuster Way in Toronto. Um, and they're observing the rise of Nazism across the Atlantic mm-hmm. with increased anxiety. And they conceive of a golem, right? Like an omnipotent golem that will go and defend Jewry from Nazism, right? And this one all-powerful entity can interpose himself between Nazism and and its victims. And, you know, the reality is that we defeated Nazism through the largest act of collective effort in the history of the world. That, and, you know, so, like, if if our answer, you know, if our, if our answer to, say, climate change is better individual choices, we're doomed. Because unless you're a, a New Yorker or you live in a handful of other cities with excellent public transit... The chances are that your biggest contribution to climate change is the car you drive to work every day. And you are not going to individually build a subway line, right? And and it is only through the will to collective action to change systemic problems that give rise to climate change that we can solve this. And so what I would say that as an individual you can do is look for ways to join collectives that are trying to resolve these issues. So find the others. Yeah. Yeah. So we have an election coming up. That's a thing you can do. I don't get to vote in it. I'm a dirty foreigner, uh, but I get to vote the way Republicans do. I can give money to political parties. And so I am giving money to down ticket candidates, uh, including the woman running for the DA of Queens that uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez just uh, backed because she has a green new deal agenda and a criminal justice reform agenda that I think makes a difference all over the world. Um, And, uh, you know, there's Electronic Frontier Foundation. There are local Electronic Frontier Foundation affiliates called uh, the Electronic Frontier Alliance that work on local issues. You know, here in LA, they're working on establishing a framework for limiting the disclosures of people's rides on scooters and and on uh, other short hire vehicles, which, you know, the, the city of LA wants to irrigate to themselves at a fine degree of detail that would have a potentially catastrophic privacy consequences. And so they're working locally on issues that become templates for national work. You know, in in Oakland, the Electronic Frontiers Alliance chapter helped usher through the first of its kind rule that requires the city to um, uh, seek public comment and approval when they're buying new surveillance apparatus. First of its kind in the country, and now it's serving as a template for uh, rules being proposed in cities all across the country. And so, you know, this is how how we get stuff done, right, is by finding collectives that care about the same issues as us and and joining in with them. Your individual work is important, but your individual work is important in the context of how it benefits a wider collective project. Finally. Yeah. um, Have you taken your kid to Disney World? Oh, we've been taking her to Disneyland since forever. I mean, my wife is a vice president at Disney Studios, and I used to work for Imagineering. But Disney World, Disney World as an enter, a hermetically sealed entertainment paradise, yeah, is fine because at least you're making us. You cross through the gates of the Magic Kingdom, and there's a social, uh, uh, there's a social contract of a sort. I'm going into this world. It's the Disneyfication, and I don't mean cor- their corporation, but the the effort to turn our world into this kind of a uh, uh, service-oriented amusement park. So 
there's it's a kind the of performance that is that is always going to be non not or at least if not non-consensual coercive right you don't get to yell at the comedian just tell me the punchlines right the dungeon master gets to hide things from you right like there are different ways of enjoying media and i actually like knowing the punchline in advance and hearing uh-huh. how the comedian sets it up but yeah. uh and that's why i listen to comedy albums more than once right but mm-hmm. but um that that is like part of the legitimate expression of art but i think you're missing a bigger picture here which is that one of science fiction's gifts is to imagine uh things that are um technologies or technical systems in different political and economic contexts so uh, like i like big elaborate theatrical built environments that do entertainment stuff i also like one click ordering on amazon uh, i also like the convenience of a big box store what I don't like is the economic and political relationships that surround those things. But, you know, like, I like Britannica, but I don't like centralized knowledge creation, so I like Wikipedia, right? And and what science fiction can do is ask questions like, what if Walmart but not capitalism, right? The, the, the part of the purpose of Walkaway was to imagine what it would look like if we built, like, luxury resorts the way that we make collaborative encyclopedias and operating systems today, right? What what fully oper- what uh, fully automated luxury communism looks like when it's at home, and you know, for me, my uh, experience going to Disney as a kid was to be brought there by my utopian socialist father, who basically said the problem with this thing is not the thing, it's the ownership structure, right? In the same way that the pro like. After the the October Revolution, they didn't burn down the Hermitage, right? The problem with the Hermitage was who got to go and see the treasure, their, the national treasures, right. not that the nation had treasures, right? And so, uh, uh, you know, like we have to accept contradictions under capitalism, but that doesn't need to make us nihilistic. In fact, what it can do is make us optimistic. We can say to ourselves, as, as in that science fictional way. What would this look like under a more equitable social relationship? What would it? What would the world be like? Not if we followed the sort of degrowth, deep green agenda where we make every lord live like a peasant. What if we had a bright green, high tech utopian agenda where every peasant gets to live like a lord? That's like an exciting vision I can get behind. Right, and that's one that that hopefully. Um we'll get to depict for people so they can maybe more easily imagine a, mm-hmm. a path there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that like, so long as what we're talking about is, uh, is, is, is a hair shirt, it will never be popular. And there's this idea I've been trying to crystallize this idea that like true abundance is not about private ownership. True abundance is just, is knowing that things will be there even if you don't privately own it. And you know, the mm-hmm. example that I have is like toilet paper right? If you ever go backpacking through a developing or underdeveloped or poor nation, you will carry toilet paper with you everywhere you go, right? That is not abundance. The reason you're carrying toilet paper with you everywhere you go is because the society is not stable enough to ensure that there's always toilet paper everywhere you need it, and you never have to think about toilet paper. Having to think about toilet paper is not the mark of abundance. It is the mark of scarcity. And having to have your own drill and your own car and your own uh, washing machine and your own uh, lawnmower 
These are not the marks of abundance, right? These are the marks of scarcity. And you can tell because just like carrying toilet paper around in your backpack is gross and you end up with this crumpled, dirty wad of toilet paper, that drill that you bought because you need to make one to two holes a year or less is the, it's like the minimum viable drill. Like it is like one uh, bad engineering decision away from actually exploding in your hand. Yeah. Right. And because like buying a better drill makes no sense, right? In a society in which we used cybernetics, we used technology to solve allocation problems efficiently. We would have the magical appearance of the drill at the moment that the drill was needed. And then the magical graceful disappearance of that drill when it's not needed again. And it would, it would end up in the hand of the next person who needed the drill. And it wouldn't be a grubby communal existence where, you know, everybody's sharing the same toothbrush. It'd be more like going into a public toilet and having some toilet paper there exactly when you need it. And it being clean. And it being clean. Right. And being clean and, you know, sort of automated and whatever. Right. You know, like that is, that is a, that is a utopian abundant materialistic future. And it's also one that's super environmentally stable, right? Because one of the reasons that we use a ton of raw materials is because everyone needs one minimum viable drill. Right. It's because we have no commons. Yeah. And one of the things that technology does is it manages commons. Right. Or it can. It it can, right? Technology solves coordination problems. Among those coordination problems are managing commons. Yeah, which is why, hopefully, I mean, I feel the the digital technology retrieves those great late medieval uh, innovations. You know, it retrieves the commons, it retrieves local currency, it retrieves you know a, a, an economy biased towards the 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 circulation of value amongst a community rather than the extraction of value from a community. But it, but you know, it can do so in a way that like beggars the imagination of the most ambitious peasants or even lords. Of, 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 you know, the Middle Ages or antiquity, because we can build a circular system whose components are geographically dispersed, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we can build circular systems grounded in mutual interest instead of uh, geographic proximity. Uh, and, you know, there are downsides to that, like one description for a system gra- bound together by mutual interest rather than geographical proximity is the neo-Nazi movement. Right. There aren't a lot of neo-Nazis, but they can all find each other. Right. But the same is true of Black Lives Matter. And it's also true of people who want to contribute to Wikipedia. And, you know, I think that, like, if we are back to conspiracies, if we want to make people less susceptible to white supremacy, which has been around forever and isn't going anywhere, the the thing that's changed is its currency. If we're going to make people less susceptible to it, then what we have to do is... Uh, make it possible to agree on what is true again by having evidentiary processes that are like uh, obviously legitimate and have the consent of the governed. Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guest today was science fiction author Cory Doctorow. You can find out more about him and his new book, Radicalized, at craphound.com. You can also find out more about all of our guests, listen to past shows, find out about upcoming live events, and become contributing subscribers by visiting us at teamhuman.fm. You can read written versions of my monologues at Medium. Team Human is a production of the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at Queens College. Our associate producers are Josh Chaptelin and Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff. 
and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.